from the well-lit studios of Rodale Institute Radio and Television at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA, it's time for another fast-growing episode of chemical-free horticultural hijinks you bet your garden. It's very rewarding to start your peppers and tomatoes from seed, but it takes several years to get good at it. I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and on today's You Bet Your Garden, we'll review the basics of successful seed starting. Plus, a wild conversation about native plants with the director of the Mount Cuba Center in Delaware. And of course, your fabulous phone call questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and gallantly gregarious gas conades. So keep your eyes and or ears right here, cats and kittens, because it's all coming up faster than you growing a beautiful beefsteak from sprout to sauce right after this. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Lehigh Valley Health Network. In life, we have many kinds of partners, school bus partners, business partners, even gardening partners. Shouldn't you have one for the most important aspect of life, your health? Lehigh Valley Health Network, your health deserves a partner. Welcome to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio and Television at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, seed starting is very tricky. A lot of people are afraid of it, and well, you should be. But we're going to tell you how to achieve success starting your own seeds if you do exactly what I tell you to do. Any deviation will lead to failure. It'll also be deviation, and that's technically a bad thing. All right, we're also going to take your fabulous phone calls, but first, we're going to do our book giveaway. This is not the last book we're going to give away. I want to, I want to make that perfectly clear, but this postcard has won the World Series, Super Bowl, and NBA championship, and the Stanley Cup of our um, postcard contest. This is all hand-drawn by Marianne Bogliani of Vineland, New Jersey. And I apologize if I butchered your last name, Marianne. She wrote, we got right back to her when this postcard came in, and she goes, I'm a retired art teacher uh, who enjoys doing acrylic paintings of pet portraits and landscapes and the occasional drawing, such as the one I sent you. I do these for special occasions, greeting cards, and friends, etc. Other than that, I spend way too much time killing my many house plants, knitting, tending to my backyard chickens, gardening with flowers around the koi pond of our home of 36 years with my husband, Tony. And I enjoy volunteering and always learning with the Rutgers Master Gardeners of Cumberland County. So uh, that's on the back of her postcard. She goes, Mike, I guess it's evident that I've got way too much time on my hands, which is a perfect excuse to read another gardening book. I've been a fan for years, Marianne. So we're going to show you the postcard in depth, but I mean, this is just the size of a postcard. She's got me in an office overwhelming with books. My inbox is marked in, out, and then there's a third one that says do the hokey pokey. There is a garden fork, Kilroy, 
who kids will not have any idea, but during World War II in Europe, soldiers would always draw this little caricature uh, peeking over a wall or something with the line, Kilroy was here. There is also a goat, a live goat on the postcard, um, which I only had to laugh about because right uh, this past weekend, we had been checking out of a hotel and the hangover was on, which I had never seen. And the part I like best is when they all wake up in the Vegas hotel room and somehow there's a chicken prowling around the room, which of course, thankfully, was never explained. Uh, Godzilla is in a painting on the wall. Ducky is there. It's just amazing. Um, in one of her emails, she also said she wanted me to sign the book. So, grand prize. She is getting my kitchen garden a to Z book, a book I did with my dear friend, uh, a photographer, Gordon Smith, um, and it's got all these beautiful full page pictures of all these gorgeous vegetables. And uh, it's sadly out of print, but I have a bunch of copies and I'm gonna sign this and send it to Marianne. This thing weighs three pounds, Mayor, so be prepared. It's coming postage due, okay? There we go. All right, Mayor, the fabulous. Um, no more postcards coming in. We got a great batch. We got a huge flurry at the end here that we're going to have to go through. So we will revisit this topic next week. Now, on with the show. 833-727-9588. John, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hola, Miguel. This is John, just south of the border. Yeah? The Canadian border. Oh, okay. You're one of them frostbacks up there now, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's snowing here today. Are you in Minnesota? No, in Alaska. Oh, you're in Alaska. Um, what part? Alaska is a big place with many uh, permutations. Yeah, this is uh, just south of the Canadian border. It's that little strip southeast Alaska that hangs off of Canada. We're about 80 miles north of Juneau, 12 miles southwest of Skagway. Okay. A lot of people have heard of that town. Yeah, well, um, I took the ferry. I spoke for the Southeast Alaska Master Gardeners um, back in the 90s, and I took the Alaska Marine Highway home from uh, from Juneau. So I never went north of Juneau, but I did the inside passage south to Bellingham, Washington. So we had a great time in Ketchikan. We stopped in Sitka. And it's just, that trip is just astoundingly beautiful. Yes, it's, um, so you know the area. Oh, I, love, I, know. I know the area very well. I spent like two weeks there. Is your climate similar to that of Juneau? It's a little more snow. I know it's been raining in Juneau the last few weeks, and uh, we're getting, oh, we probably got three or four inches of snow overnight. Yeah, um, people would find this unusual to believe, uh, but the southeast Alaska along the inside passage, not the mainland, doesn't get much snow. Well, except for Haynes, we are at the north end of the Lynn Canal. Gotcha. Uh, like I said, 80 miles north of Juneau, so we get quite a bit of snow. Oh, okay. I got yeah. you now. And how long are your uninterrupted hours of daylight in the summer? 
Uh, we get up to about 21 hours of wow. sunlight. Wow. And what about now, or shouldn't I ask? <laughs> well, we're down to about six hours of daylight, and it's um, coming back. It's the first week of January that we're making this call, and we've got about six and a half hours. Yeah, it's uh it's an amazing place. All right, what can we do for you, sir? Well, it's about those short hours that I'm calling uh, for. It's um, that I've got a number of house plants that I use a an electric uh, grow light, and I'm wondering if it would be best since we get what I call gray light instead of daylight, mm-hmm. if it would be better for me to turn this light on during the hours of daylight, or if it would be better for me to extend the hours by turning the light on before and or after the daylight happens. What kind of uh, house plants are we talking about? Well, I've got a six-year-old chili pepper plant. Uh, that's not a house two... plant. That's a special needs plant. Okay. <laughs> Okay, good. And then there's a two-year-old impatient, or they call it a sun patient. Right, I understand. And, oh, and then a one-year-old foot-tall bromeliad. Oh, beautiful. They're great plants. Okay, yeah. so um, how did you learn to overwinter your pepper plants? Boy, um, I just brought it in at the end of the season, which, you know, maybe September, it may be November, right. um, and put it under uh, light, and it surprisingly uh, lasted six years. That's great. No, it's not surprising at all. I've been um, overwintering my pepper plants since the 90s, and it's just amazing. When they get to be five or six years old, as you know, that green stem turns woody and they tend to develop a very active canopy with lots of leaves and peppers at the top of the plant. Yes. Uh, Beautiful. Well, this plant has had, uh, well, this past summer we had two weeks of really hot weather. And so I don't know if it's a psychotic or if it's got a split personality, but it had red peppers for the first time and then the typical purple peppers that Mm -hmm. it's had for the first five years. Right. Okay, so many hot pepper plants go through several color stages. Um, It it wouldn't be unusual to have a hot pepper plant where the peppers first appeared as yellow and then changed to orange. Actually, first is green, then yellow, then orange, then red. And if you're going to have a purple stage, which only some peppers have, it would be before the red. Purple peppers are not quite ripe. They're not green peppers, but all purple peppers, if left to their own devices, will become red peppers. So you actually carried that plant through to its final stage of ripeness. And one important thing about that is once that pepper had been red for a week or two, you could save the seeds and they would germinate because that pepper was fully matured. Yes, I've done that. Yes, and as you may know, 
if uh, even over the summer, these things uh, don't go dormant. These are tropical plants. If you want to selectively pick peppers off, it's not unusual. There's a, a pepper called Ordono that I absolutely love, which is also known as New Mex, uh, New Mex Rainbow, I believe it. It's from the University of New Mexico. But they, go, they have five color stages. And if you selectively pick them, you can make a Christmas tree with lights on it. <laughs> so oh, great. what that pepper plant wants is lumens and lots of them. What kind of a, quote, plant light do you have? Well, it is simply a bulb. It's not even a tube. Mm-hmm. And but it's uh, oh, and I should say that it's it's a um, LED type. Mm-hmm. Do you have you have any so, idea how many lumens it gives off? I don't. It's not very bright. It's very red. Oh yeah, no, no, that's nonsense. What I would suggest is. Um, you know, you have stores there. You don't have to get everything off the ferry. See if you can get the new LED, um, just fake fluorescent lights is the only way I can describe it. They look like fluorescents, but they're LEDs. And for peppers and things like that, you always want the maximum number of lumens. So on the sleeve, these tubes come in, whether they're regular fluorescents or the LEDs, they'll have a lumen rating. And there's a wide range. You can have two tubes that look identical. One will be 1,800 lumens. The other will be 24. You want to go for the 24, and you want to keep the top of the plant almost touching the tubes. Because whether it's okay. fluorescent or LED, the tubes are cool. There's no danger. But the lumens drop off after a couple of inches. So you really want to keep that thing there. If you don't okay. have the room for four-foot tubes, which would, you know, I don't know if you have these things on a windowsill or something like that, but I have uh, a two-tube, four-foot-long fluorescence hanging over my special house plants. And they absolutely love it. So, okay. And, you know, the bromeliad is kind of an understory plant in the wild, but it can take a lot of sun. Obviously, that's a plant that you want to water a lot. Yeah. And the impatiens, uh, they don't need a lot of light to begin with. So they can be kind of far away from the, uh, from the light source itself. But they'll benefit from being, you know, even a foot away because these were these were plants that didn't want a lot of light when they were when they were outdoors. And if you want to start well, some seeds, you know, you can just rig up books underneath the the tubing and have a little uh, thing of seeds starting there next to your hot pepper. Make good use of the light again. Keep everything really close to the tubes. But the fact that you have a six-year-old pepper says to me that you have a real good sense of what you're doing in a fairly green thumb. Okay. Oh, and the answer is try to mimic the hours of daylight in the summertime. Or with things like hot peppers, you can either go back to their DNA and give them 12 hours of light and 12 hours of dark, or you can simply turn the lights off for eight hours at nighttime coming back on 
when the sun will rise at your most normal time of the year. Okay. Great. Thank you. All right. My pleasure. Um, enjoy your summer when it comes around. That's <laughs> yeah, a long way off right now. I know. Uh, but every day you get another hour. You get another couple of minutes, right? Yes. Yeah, we're up to about a minute and a half now, and it's uh, speeding up as we go. Yeah. So keep your hopes up. All right. All right, man. Thank you. Gracias, Miguel. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Two little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs. Two little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs. Two little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and announce that I will descend upon the greater D.C. area who appear at the Spring Home Show at the Dulles Expo Center in Chantilly, Virginia on February 22nd and 23rd. But don't go looking for all the details at the events section of our website just yet because we'll be right back to discuss the showiest native plants and take more of your showy phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Rodale Institute. Since 1947, the Rodale Institute has been growing the organic movement through research, farmer training, and consumer education. Learn more about local events, workshops, and tours at rodaleinstitute.org. The Rodale Institute, because the future is organic. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio and Television at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up, more of your fabulous phone calls and a great question of the week. But now it's time to welcome our special guest, Jeff Downing, who is executive director of the Mount Cuba Center in Hokessing, Delaware. Jeff, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thanks very much, Mike. Now, let's talk about the name of this facility first, because when I first visited there, I expected to see an assortment of tropical plants, like I saw when I led a uh, tour group in Cuba. But it turns <laughs> out that even though it's spelled the same as Cuba, um, it has absolutely nothing to do with that island nation. Absolutely nothing to do with the island nation. That's correct. In fact, uh, the name Mount Cuba is uh, thought to have come from one of the first landowners of that property who was an Irishman. And he came from an nothing area... Nothing but trouble. I know. Nothing but trouble. <laughs> and uh, he came from an area in Dublin uh, that was called something like Cuba. Yeah, I've seen it spelled out. Yeah, and so uh, when he moved there and he, he bought this uh, hilltop area and uh, he decided that it felt like home and he called it Cuba Rock. And then uh, when uh, 
the Copeland family purchased the land in the 1930s, they just uh, took that name for their estate, and so they called their estate Mount Cuba. It's, it's not exactly a classic botanic garden in the traditional sense of something like a Chanticleer or mm -hmm. Longwood. It's more of an experience that involves um, a lot of plantings and a lot of native plants. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, the Copeland family became more and more uh, attuned and interested in native plants throughout their lives. They lived there their entire lives. Mrs. Copeland lived into her mid-90s and didn't pass away until 2001. Mm -hmm. But over those years, they became more interested in native plants and concerned about their conservation. And so they wanted to leave their estate to be both a botanical garden to showcase those plants and also a center to inspire and motivate people to think differently about their own planting choices at home. And there isn't there some sort of uh, national website where you can find the best native plants? I think you're also referring to uh, uh, some research that we did with a team of 15 scientists. Exactly. And and that research was really about trying to give people realistic advice about what sort of uh, native plants they should feel comfortable planting in their home landscape. There are some who feel like uh, only wild seed-grown things uh, are suitable for a garden landscape. And, and what uh, we found out is that, you know, cultivars and the kinds of plants that you'll find at your local nursery in most cases are, are going to be just fine and they're not going to threaten local ecosystems. Okay. Now, before we get into that, we want to talk about Mount Cuba a little bit. You are open to the public. We are. And I believe your opening day is April 1st. It is, April Fools. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to bring that up, <laughs> but thank you for doing it. And you have a big event at the end of April. We do. Our annual wildflower celebration is the last Sunday in April. It uh, is free admission, and uh, we have plants for Check sale. Check that out, cats and kittens, free. <laughs> yeah, and we have uh, generally uh, uh, thousands of visitors that come and visit us. We have lots of activities, things for the family, things for the kids. Is there for a plant sale? There are plants for sale. We have a number of plants, uh, all native plants that are available to, to purchase and take home. And uh, we also have food trucks and uh, beer and wine on site. So that's at the end of April, last Sunday. That's the end of, yeah, uh, last Sunday of April. And that's nearing high season for our spring ephemerals. Sure. Yeah. Those, uh, you know, beautiful plants that we feature lots of trilliums and other understory plants mm -hmm. that uh, live their life cycle before the trees really leaf out. Are you lucky enough to have lady slippers? We are lucky enough to have lady slippers. We have quite a few of them. They bloom a little bit later towards uh, the mid-late May into June. Uh, when you'll have to pay to get in, but it'll be worth it. That's right. <laughs> But before we move on, um, there may be people out there who don't understand what a lady slipper is, and it is a unique plant in so many ways. It is a true orchid, mm -hmm. right? Um, but unlike 99 and three-quarter percent of orchids, it is not an epiphyte that hangs on trees and stuff. It's a terrestrial it orchid. It is a terrestrial it orchid. It lives in the ground blooms in the spring mm -hmm. and can't be moved, can't be deliberately planted. The only thing you can do if you're lucky enough to have them show up on your land is leave them alone and just enjoy them. We actually have a program with volunteers, citizen scientists, who've gone out to survey 
as many of the wild orchid populations as we could find. And uh, we found uh, a lot of the ones that were documented, and many of them documented 20, 30 years ago. Many of them were still there. Mm -hmm. Some of them weren't, but in the process of looking for them, uh, these orchid scouts managed to find a number of new orchid populations that hadn't even been known before. Which is good, because you've got a short window. Be these things are truly ephemeral. That's true. They, they come and they go. So if you don't see them when they're there, you're not even going to know they were. Or as we like to say on this show, you snooze, you lose. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about this research that you were involved with. That was nationwide, mm -hmm. right? Is, wasn't the main author from California? Well, uh, we had a, a team of people from botanical gardens and uh, un major universities around the country. Uh, Chicago Botanic Garden, the United States Botanic Garden. In fact, a couple of years ago, the U.S. Botanic Garden officially reinstated diplomatic relations with Mount Cuba. Oh, that's it. That's, did they think you were the other Cuba? Is that why? <laughs> well, it was a play on that. And uh, in fact, we got a, a, a flag that had flown over the Capitol building as part of this uh, uh, rapprochement, so oh, to speak. Oh, that's great. That's great. Do you get funding now? No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it goes. Okay. So tell us again about this research. This is plantfinder.org, I presume? Uh, well, you can you just go straight to the Mount Cuba website, right. and that will take you to the... the uh, uh, the plant finder, and that's one thing. But this native plant research project that we did with all of these collaborators was a different project because we were trying to assess uh, all of the different known uh, uh, species of, of different plants to get a sense of what their threat level was if uh, gardeners were to, to uh, plant cultivars in uh, their gardens and, and in, what in what cases would it be reasonable to use cultivars, and in what cases do you really need to use the seed-grown wild? Has something like that always existed for plants, or is this a new concept? Well, I mean, there's always been things, that, well, I mean, not always, but there are lots of lists. There's the, the red lists that are done by IUCN. Which and, is? Uh, the International Union uh, for the Con okay, Conservation ahead. of Nature. Okay. And uh, they basically do assessments of threat levels of different species. We actually hosted a panel of uh, scientists who were doing the threat level analysis for the Trillium family. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. There are, you know, different uh, authorities that basically try to assess threat levels. But what we were talking about... But the one I'm talking about, for instance, there's one place mm -hmm. with all the lists. Right, right. Well, IUCN is about the most sort of authoritative in that regard, I would okay. say. So what did you learn from the research? What we learned from this is that uh, basically uh, you plant native plants on a spectrum. If you are doing a restoration project and you're trying to restore an ecosystem, you want diverse genetics. So you're going to want to have uh, plants that were grown from seed that uh, were kind of, you know, sort of uh, naturally occurring. But what's available to most gardeners are cultivars, plants yeah. that have been propagated, usually uh, clonally, so they're all genetically <clears throat> identical. So some in some quarters, there is a fear that planting these genetic clones may uh, impact negatively on local ecosystems. And what we basically found is you don't want to use those 
cultivars when you're doing restoration. Mm -hmm. But in a garden context, mm -hmm. those genetics are very unlikely to escape mm -hmm. and uh, somehow infect or, or have a, an adverse uh, reaction on local ecosystems. I have to stop you here because we need to explain this is not genetic engineering. No. Cloning is very similar to grafting where you take a piece of a parent plant and turn it into a full-sized plant. So, Correct. I mean, it's been going on for hundreds, for all we know, thousands of years pre-Mendel. Um, now, you may raise an interesting point that I hadn't thought about. Cloning obviously produces exact um, replicas mm -hmm. of the cloned parent plant. Um, spreading trillium seed, will there be little differences between the plants that pop up, different there, characteristics? There will. And that's one of the tricky things about our trillium garden, still talking about trillium, here we go. Yeah, exactly. Um, but we, our can't, trillium, we can't stop him, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> our trillium garden has uh, a, a number of species planted right next to each other. And in order to prevent them from interbreeding, we have to make sure that we deadhead them as, as soon as they you know, get to the seed pod stage. To make you take sure. them to a concert? Yeah, that's right. Uh, the, the deadheads of trillium, yeah. yeah. That's, that's why it's called the fish garden, kids. <laughs> <laughs> oh, getting a little bit more contemporary. Are <laughs> yeah. So anyway, yeah, so uh, we do have to make sure that we don't let them interbreed in order to maintain the, the purity of the, the selections that we have in right. the garden. Right, but wouldn't it be fun if they did in a it home would. garden? And, and there are places in our own garden where we're more likely to let them just go to seed and, and propagate themselves. And, and you know, it, it, they do interbreed a little bit, and so it goes. Yeah. So yeah. is nature. So I think that brings us uh, to your big news this year, right? The Hellenium? Correct. Uh, this is on the, uh, the front of the research report, the one you've been talking about, right? That's true. And you've been involved in a massive breeding program of this plant that kind of looks a little, um, little daisy-like, mm -hmm. you know. One of the little coneflower like is a it? little bit. Yeah, they're they're very cute. They're uh, they go from yellow to orange and red. Uh, they uh, they traditionally like to live in wet, marshy kinds of areas. I see them when I'm kayaking along little rivers uh, around the Chesapeake. Um, but they're a plant that was uh, first kind of appreciated mostly by Europeans. So mm -hmm. rather than becoming popular in North America, they were the seeds and plants were taken over to Europe and they were bred over there for many years. And so what we did is we had to bring them back mm -hmm. and we planted them out in our trial garden to see what would happen. And, and it was interesting because some succeeded well, but in fact, a lot of them had lost their uh, kind of weather tolerance. Yeah, their tolerance of, of uh, the conditions here in the mid-Atlantic because they had spent most of their genetic breeding lives in, in Europe. Now, tell us more about your Hellenium project. Sure. Well, we have a trial garden. It's about 6,000 square feet where we trial all sorts of different kinds of native plants. We get you know as many different cultivars as we can find, and then we get as many straight species as we can find to test next to them. And we test them for both their horticultural and their ecological value. So we'll see uh, you know, how well do they flower? Are they disease and pest resistant? But we'll also have volunteers go and count how many butterflies. Are I was going to say there's a bumblebee on one of the flowers on on the cover of your document here. Yes, and so we uh, actually count. We have people that go out and you know sort of met methodologically count. One, two, stay, <laughs> stay still over there. Yeah. You didn't get counted yet. Some people, yeah, really mm -hmm. enjoy being out in our garden doing that. Yeah, otherwise it's like, 
watching paint dry. <laughs> well, you don't want to be having to watch the plant that has no bugs. Yeah, exactly. Which is probably not a native. So, helenium blooms in the spring? Uh, it's more of a summer. Okay. Summertime plant, summer to even late, late summer. Okay, that's good because yeah. that can be... Uh, that can be kind of a dead time if you're growing native plants. It can, and uh, they grow in full sun, so they, they are you know, very good in just sort of a general garden with uh, lots of sunshine, and, and they can be, re they're really attractive. And good for pollinators. Good for pollinators. Butterflies. They, yeah, attractive to bees, butterflies, all the, the insects. And uh, their pollen is nutritious and delicious. As far as we can tell, the bugs seem to like it. Okay, good. Now, uh, how have you have bred new cultivars? Uh, not of Hellenium. Okay. We have uh, introduced uh, into the trade a number of cultivars over over the years, but we never bred them. Okay. We only selected them. Right. So Mount Cuba Center's they showed up. Introductions are things that somebody just noticed. And we said, hey, that's a really interesting plant. And then we would kind of propagate it and grow it and see how it did. And then after that, we'll send it to some nurseries and see how they grow it. And if they perform really well, we'll uh, try to release it into I the I would trade. say 50, 100 years ago, that's where most of the new introductions came from. Yeah. so-called sports out Correct. in the wild. That's exactly it. I had this happen in my own garden. When we moved into this house 35 years ago, there was an existing peony plant, beautiful hmm. pink, and very hardy, very reliable, looked to me very old, which is hard to tell with a herbaceous perennial. Mm -hmm. But after like 20 years, another plant sprung up next to it with similar but somewhat different leaves. Hmm. And it didn't bloom for the first three or four years, but when it finally did, it was this blood red peony. Wow. And apparently some bee had visited another peony somewhere, come to my peonies. We never removed the seed heads. We let hmm. the birds do that. Mm -hmm. And I got a sport. Huh. Neat. I oh. should release it into the trade and quit That's this it. lame job. <laughs> well, you're not going to get rich releasing plants into the trade. I can tell you that. But it just uh, it diversifies the availability of things that people can find. Before I let you go, I have to tell you about my favorite section of Mount Cuba. There's a pond with a non-working ro uh, rowboat on it. Correct. And on the outskirts is a delightful planting of pitcher plants. Indeed, Saracenia. They attract insects down into their bottom with sweet syrupy liquid sweet down there. Sweet syrupy liquid. And but they get trapped. It's a fly trap. Yeah. And uh, they, the flies go in, but they can't come out. Yeah, I like that. And of course, they're going to grow near the water where there's lots of bugs. Sure. But if you want, if you have a pond and there's lots of bugs, wouldn't it make sense to try to establish pitcher plants around it? It really would. And if you don't have a pond, you can come to Mount Cuba's. Uh, we just started a membership program just okay. in the past several months. So now uh, people have the opportunity to not just visit, but also to become a member and come back all year. Okay, because obviously we've talked about many different um, stages of the season and really cool stuff that's there. Well, that's part of what's interesting about a native plant garden is it changes with the seasons. So you get the, the trilliums and the orchids at the spring, and then you get uh, something, you know, more like uh, your uh, kind of echinacea, your coneflowers and things in the summertime. And then you finish the year with asters and, and goldenrod. And, and so there's just something different each time of year. That's amazing. All right. Jeff Dowling is executive director of the Mount Cuba Center in Hokessing, Delaware. Uh, check it out. What's your website, Jeff? It is mtcubacenter.org. Thanks for being on You Bet Your Garden. I've had a great time.
Well, it's time for me to take a little break and announce that I will appear at the fabled Philadelphia Flower Show on Wednesday, March 4th at 4 p.m. Now, plan to get there early because speakers this year only have 20 minutes and my bio takes up 15 of those. But don't go planning your route just yet because we'll be right back with the secrets of successful seed starting and more of your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodell Institute TV and Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural, organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath. And we are in the stretch now, cats and kittens. In just a little bit, we'll get to the question of the week, how you can become a successful seed starter. Before that, a couple more of your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Mark, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thanks, Mike. How are you? I am just ducky, Mark. Thank you for asking. How are you, sir? I'm good, thanks. And where is Mark good? I am calling from Chicago, Illinois. Oh, how can you not be good in Chicago? One of my absolute favorite cities in America. You can't get a bad meal in Chicago. It has the Vatican of baseball parks in Wrigley Field. And it's also the originator of pinball. All of the early pinball companies were located in Chicago, I guess because it was easy to ship machines to both coasts from there. When I uh, visited Chicago, I was under the L, and I found this great little hole in the wall, Japanese restaurant, and I had a great noodle dish. And then I saw this weird-looking storefront down the street, and I went up to it, and it was a Gottlieb showplace where they had machines that they weren't sure which were they were going to produce. Okay. So they had them all up on risers under spotlights. And the guy who made your change, that's when you used quarters, was wearing uh, a tux. And when you were done playing, you filled out this little card about what the play was like and whether you would play it for real in an arcade or a bar. It was amazing. I felt like, cool. I, I, felt like I had died and gone to heaven. Awesome. All right, what can we do for Mark in Chicago? So last summer, I had a terrible Japanese beetle problem on my roses. Mm-hmm. Um, and after reading about it a little bit more, I uh, came to understand that uh, the root of the problem, so to speak, was in my yard, probably, mm -hmm. grubs, yep. which um, there were quite a bit of grubs in my lawn. Okay, so that's so, not good for your lawn either. You know that. Correct. Yeah. Um, so um, so I want to sort of be proactive um, this, this coming season and try and avoid the problem so that I don't have to pick all the uh, Japanese beetles off my roses. Okay, so fun. before we get to grub control, um, do you feed your roses? I do. I give them an organic granular fertilizer. Excellent. Are they mulched? Uh, they are. They're mulched more heavily in the winter, and then I usually spread the, mul the, the mulch out. What are you uh, using? Spring. Uh, leaf mold. Okay, that's excellent right there. Do you put out Japanese beetle traps? I 
don't. Okay, um, excellent. Kind of heard mixed reviews on that. Yeah, no. So far, you're you know you're going to double jeopardy with the most money. Okay, so here's the deal. Yes, the grubs in your soil right now are the larval form of scarab beetles, like Japanese beetles, but also Asiatic beetles, rose chafer beetles. It's a large family, and they all have white grubs living down in the soil. Now, if you find a white grub, you can actually go online and look at its rear end and use the hinder finder grub guide. I forget what university did this, but they took pictures of every grub's rear end because that's where they're different and you can figure out exactly what you got. At any rate, there's nothing to do right now because your grubs are way below the frost line. They're in a dormant stage. As the weather warms up, they will begin to move up through your soil. Now, grubs only feed in the fall when their eggs hatch uh, underground and then they feed on the roots of your grass, sometimes as the grubs get large, doing a significant amount of damage. So the fall, or actually late summer, when you see the beetles starting to thin out, that's your big time. But right now, in the spring, there's a brand new product called BTG. Now, people hear me talk about BT, which is a, a genus called a Bacillus thuringiensis. Now, in that genus, there are many species or strains. Um, the original BT, called BTK, uh, kills destructive caterpillars, harms nothing else. BTI, added to water, prevents mosquito larvae from developing into biting adults, harms nothing else, even creatures that drink that water. BTG, which is the newest BT to be discovered and isolated, stands for BT Galleria, affects grubs and adult beetles. Um, you can get it from Gardens Alive. I don't know if it's an exclusive or if it's available at retail, but you can certainly go to the Gardens Alive website and read more about it, see the label, everything like that. Now, when the weather warms up the tiniest bit, there is a granular form that you can spread on your soil that should take out some of the grubs. Probably more effective in the spring would be to buy beneficial nematodes. These are microscopic predators that come in, um, in a little pouch, you know, smaller than one of those doby pads that you use to scrub your dishes. But there's 50 million of them in there. So you drop these into a watering can or a sprayer, mix it up so they all come out and get into the solution. And then as the sun goes down, you spray it on your lawn wet them in, and they will travel down into the ground. And the latest generation that they're selling are true predators. They will seek them out. The old style would just sit there and hope for a grub to come by. But these are more like panthers. They're going to go out there and find these grubs, and then they just tunnel into them and eat them. So just make sure your soil temperature is okay for that. Then I want you to buy a Japanese beetle trap, put it out, in the middle of your roses and check it every day. When you catch your very first beetle, fold it up, put it away, put it in 16 Ziplocs in your basement for use the following year. Then you want to spray your roses with the liquid form of BTG, which is also available from Gardens Alive. Again, maybe at retail, the label would say uh, Bacillus thuringiensis galleria, or BTG. As soon as the adults start to feed, they'll die. 
nothing else will be harmed. It doesn't harm pollinators, butterflies, birds, bees, wombats, anything like that. So then at the end of the season, if you still had some, yeah, actually, you know, if you don't see living beetles around, you should be cool. But at the end of the summer, say late July, when the grubs, any grubs would be in your soil and actively feeding, that's the better time to put down the granular form of BTG, and that'll really knock them down. So uh, I would say beneficial nematodes this spring when the soil is warm enough, there'll be instructions on how to use them and what the soil temperature needs to be so they can be very active. And then a BTG, the liquid form on your roses when the beetles attack. And then if you want to be really safe, the granular form of BTG um, in late July, early August. Okay, great. That was more than you thought you were going to get, wasn't it? <laughs> very thorough. I appreciate it. All right, it is time for the question of the week, Seed Starting 101. Now, this week's question was going to be attributed to Erica in Wheatfield, New York, a small town between Niagara Falls and Buffalo. She wanted to know if she really had to bleach her seed starting containers. But Erica learned the answer, which was a loud and certain no, when our peerless producer, Tavia, picked her for a phone call that aired two weeks ago. So she can't ask this question. Sorry, Erica. <clears throat> okay, all seriousness aside, let's walk through the task of seed starting. Containers. Now, forget about old egg cartons, yogurt cups, and other silly stuff. Use the six-pack plastic containers, or four-packs, or whatever, that garden centers and nurseries use. They're the right height and shape and have excellent drainage. Medium. Now, that's not the fortune teller who's going to predict why your starts will die. Medium is the term we use for the non-soil we fill our containers with. Non, because you will not use any garden soil. You want a bagged product containing materials like milled peat moss, perlite, and or vermiculite, and compost or composted forest products. Do not attempt a miracle by using a bagged mix that contains chemical fertilizers like Osmocote or miracle Grow. Although organic mixes containing natural plant foods and things like worm castings are great. Step one, fill your containers with the medium and place them in water for an hour until they become heavy and saturated. Step two, Place them on something like a cookie tray that has a small lip all around to contain excess water. Step three, place the saturated containers on the cookie sheet and place two seeds in each individual cell. Not one seed and not six, two seeds in each. Mark the containers well, unlike me, so that you'll know which tomato is which a month from now. Unless they're all dead and then it won't make any difference. Step four, stretch saran wrap or a similar product over top of the whole schmageggy. Step five, bottom heat. Your seeds should germinate well if you just set them up in the warmest part of your house. But if you have the clearance on top of your fridge where the warm air rises up from the compressor is ideal. Do not put your setup on a windowsill, radiator, or other foolish idea. They don't need light yet, and they prefer that their fruit be cooked not the seeds. Step 5A, 
professional heating mats are a great investment if you want to do this right. They provide just the right amount of gentle continuous bottom heat. Step six, inspect your plants to be daily. You want to see moisture beating up on the inside of that saran wrap. If you don't see it, add water to the pan. Do not water from above. Step seven, when you see the very first sprouts appear, remove the plastic and any extra sources of bottom heat. From here on in, it's light, light, light. Speaking of light, sunny windowsill is actually Latin for your plants look like a tall but underfed basketball player. A windowsill does not provide enough hours of light and it's likely cold as heck at night. But if you have a true solarium that gets an intense amount of light, go for it. But if your plants still begin to look leggy, which is tall and thin, give it up and use artificial light. Which brings us to artificial light. Easy peasy. If you're only starting a few six packs, get a standard shop light. Two four foot long fluorescent tubes and set it up. You can use the chains that come with such lights to raise it as your plants grow taller, but I prefer to put the cookie sheet up on a pile of books to start with and remove the books as necessary. Either way, the tops of your plants should never be more than an inch away from the tubes. Fluorescent light is cold, so it's better to have the plants growing into the tubes than to be too far away. Options. My quote shop lights have four four-foot-long fluorescent tubes, so I can raise more plants under them and still give each one plenty of lumens. That's not lupins. I recently saw LEDs used in the same type of fixtures, and they are excellent. They're much brighter, much longer-lasting, and they are super cool-looking. Yes, they cost more, but like that hair color ad, you're worth it, and so are your baby plants. Moving forward, cut back on the water and keep the plants close to those tubes. If both seeds sprout, cut off the weakest looking one with a pair of scissors, and yes, you have to, be brave. About three to four weeks after emergence, feed your babies with a dilute liquid organic fertilizer. Repeat this every two weeks afterwards. Timing, you should start your seeds about two months before your typical planting date. Where I live, that's somewhere between May 15th and June 1st, so I typically start my seeds when the Philadelphia Flower Show closes in March. No matter what, do not take your plants outside until nighttime temps are reliably in the nifty 50s. Extra innings. If you want to start something early, do pepper plants. They are very slow to grow, and they wouldn't mind an extra two weeks. They will still be small at planting time, but your tomatoes will not be. They will be tall and begging to go outside. And they can actually go out on sunny days. Just bring them back inside on nights that dip below 50. That's advice from your dip. Well, that sure was an unusually specific look at seed starting now, wasn't it? Luckily for you, you can read the info over at your leisure or your leisure because the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. Just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is still and will forever be youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden question of the week, and you will always find the latest question of the week where? At the Gardens Alive 
website. Yikes, my producer is threatening to dim my lights if I don't get out of this studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 833-727-9588 or send us your email, your tired, your poor, your wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org. Always please include your location. Now you'll find all of this contact information, plus answers to your garden questions, audio of this show, video of this show, audio and video of recent shows, my upcoming events, and links to our internationally renowned podcast, not podcast, podcast. That's all at our website, youbetyourgarden.org. You Bet Your Garden is a half-hour public television show, an hour-long public radio show and podcast, all produced and delivered to you weekly by Rodale Institute Television and Radio in association with Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Our radio show is proudly distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. You Bet Your Garden was created by Mike McGrath. Mike McGrath was created in a mason jar by a certain Dr. Pretorius. Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our angel of the airways is Christine Dempsey. Our engineer is cheerful Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda Norfleet. Check out her fine work at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Our peerless princess of profound production is Tavia Minnick. Our website wonder is Nicole Harrell. Our audio editor is the lovely Jonas Bowen. Our video editor is Judicious Jake Foyer. Our harassed and harried director is Javier Diaz. And Eric is running the camera this week. Zach the Takwisneski is, where is he, Eric? I haven't seen him for ages. Our staff has voted our beloved and beleaguered CEO, Tim Fallon, who is not our executive producer, most likely to be late for his own funeral. I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and when the time comes, I want to be on a burning Viking barge on the Delaware River, which is actually my second choice because I can't spell skookle. And if that don't happen, I'll see you again next week. Ah, this is the ticket. Oh, it is, is it? Beautiful night. I got my best girl with me. Although, you know what could make it even better? Let me guess. Some mint chocolate chip. Bingo. You always get a little sappy when that sweet tooth kicks in. Partners since the beginning. Throughout life, you have many different partners. Shouldn't you have one for the most important aspect of life? Your health. Lehigh Valley Health Network. Your health deserves a partner. Learn more at lvhn.org. The only way to really improve clay soil is with a backhoe. But sandy soil is a different story. I'm Mike McGrath, and on the next thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden, we'll reveal how to turn sand into the perfect garden soil as we answer a listener's question from Australia. Plus your fabulous phone calls. That's all on the next You Bet Your Garden.